Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is the exhibition Audubon's Aviary, part one of The Complete Flock and World War II and New York City. I hope you'll all return to visit the exhibition if you haven't already seen them and all the other exciting offerings at New York Historical, including our Bernard Nyren Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your admission during our pay-as-you-wish Friday nights. New York Historical Society members play an invaluable role in supporting our exhibitions and educational programs, and I encourage you to join. If you're not already a member, you'll receive exclusive benefits throughout the museum and discounted tickets to most public programs. So if you're interested in becoming a member, please speak with one of my colleagues today after, you know, before you leave today. So this morning's program, New Thinking on the American Revolution, includes two talks with a short break in between, both of which will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing microphones, which will be set up in the aisles, and we ask that you do this so that the speaker on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you, and we're also recording this. We are, um, and so we want to make sure that the, whoever watches or listens to the recordings will hear you as well. The program is part of the Bernard Nyren Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I would also like to thank our partners in presenting this, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who developed this program in collaboration with us. So let's give them all a hand. And now I'd like to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speakers. So welcome, Alan. Thank you very much. I'd also like to welcome everyone on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and to thank our host, the New York Historical Society. If you're not familiar with FPRI, let me just explain briefly that it was founded in 1955 in Philadelphia by Robert Strauss-Hupé on the premise that a, a nation should think before it acts. It was not bad advice then, and it's still good advice uh, today. Uh, Strauss-Hupé is said to have introduced uh, geopolitics into the American vocabulary, geopolitics being simply the study of history, geography, and culture to illuminate contemporary international affairs. And that remains our method to this day, except on occasions like today, when we simply do history. Uh, this morning, our first lecturer, however, is not a historian. He is a student of insurgency, studying the subject not just in books, but on the ground. And he holds the, Mark Genest holds the Forrest Sherman Chair of Public Diplomacy as you can see, in the Strategy and Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College, where he directs the Center on Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups. He served as a civilian advisor to our armed forces in Afghanistan, and I should say, this is a bit of a mouthful, but I have to read it. Uh, he received the Commander's Award for Civilian Service from the Department of the Army for Outstanding Service 
as a special advisor to the commander of Task Force Mountain Warrior while stationed in Regional Command East in Afghanistan. He earned his Ph.D. from Georgetown in international politics, and what he'll do today is take modern concepts like strategic communications and information operations and apply them to the American Revolution, and I think deliver for you a really fresh perspective on the revolution. So please welcome Mark Genest. Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be in New York City, even though I hail from the Boston area. Um, today I'm going to do something a little different, like the introduction mentioned. Uh, I'm going to look at Sam Adams, the Sons of Liberty, and the American revolutionaries as I would contemporary insurgents trying to overthrow a government. So my perspective is going to be slightly different, but I'm also going to make some inferences about how insurgents operate on a daily basis uh, in contemporary times, particularly in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and compare them to how the founders of the American Republic acted. And what we're going to find is a remarkable parallel uh, between today and uh, the 18th century. In fact, I would argue that today's insurgents have nothing over the American insurgents uh, of the 18th century. First, let's get some forms, some, some uh, phrases, and some uh, operational concepts uh, that we use today uh, and explain those a bit before I explain how the Americans used them uh, during the revolt against the British. The first thing is called strategic communications. And strategic communications is very simple. It's the messages that governments send to other governments to broader audiences, either the domestic audience as a whole or the international audience. So this encompasses everything from public affairs officers, from press secretaries, uh, from presidents and other politicians making speeches or pronouncements. So this is the face that American government or any government um, uses to portray itself to others, including the domestic community as well as the international community. The next thing that we're going to be talking about is something called information operations. And that's a technical uh, military term that we use to describe three types of actions that we use in warfare. The first is called military deception, or MILDEC, uh, the acronym that we use. Military deception is just that. How do you deceive the enemy? How do you enhance the fog of war so the enemy doesn't know your position, doesn't know your strategy, so you can outthink and outfox your enemy um, on an operational, on the battleground, on the theater of operation in which you're actually acting? The second thing is psychological operations, or we call PSYOPs. PSYOPs is getting inside the mind of your enemy, playing games with your enemy. Uh, it can be using facts uh, to um, spin so that the enemy looks bad and you look better. It can also be encompassed disinformation campaign, uh, which is literally lies used uh, to, again, gain an advantage over your enemy. And what we're going to see is that the Americans are very adept at both of these things, military deception, um, and psychological operations. And finally, there's operational security, and that is essentially keeping your secrets secret from the enemy. And George Washington is absolutely fixated on this, uh, and he places a great deal of emphasis on keeping secrets from the enemy because he knows that he needs to acquire every advantage possible to defeat a vastly superior conventional enemy. Okay. 
The essence of a propaganda war, the essence of a communications battle, or the battle for ideas, or the battle of perceptions, is to understand the various audiences that you're playing to. Uh, we think of today with the internet and with cable news that nothing is ever domestic, it's all intermestic. If a president says something for domestic consumption, um, they hear it halfway around the world as well. Well, back in the 18th century, it was the case in, as well in many ways. Uh, the American audience is the, going to be obviously the key audience uh, in this, grap for, this fight for uh, influence um, over the American public between the British and the American radicals. Uh, so the key here is what audience is being um, focused on the most between the two sets, between the British and the Americans. And here we see that it, you have to, you have to bifurcate the audiences. First, you have elites in American society. And these are the wealthy merchants, the intellectuals who populate American cities, uh, the well-to-do. The, the, these are the elites who essentially produce public opinion or lead public opinion. Um, and that's going to be a real battle between the, for the hearts and minds of the American elites between the American radicals and the British. Next, you have the masses. Uh, and it's not just uh, the dominant white settlers. But the British are going to do a remarkable job of getting Native Americans to ally with them. Um, and they're going to actually try to get uh, black Americans, uh, African Americans, to come over to their side. And they'll do so by promising freedom um, if the slaves and other African Americans living within the colonies uh, will assist the British in the cause. Then there's also the British home front. And the Americans are very astute in attacking the British home front, of making an ideological argument that would appeal to British sensibilities. And here the Americans have a remarkable audience that is very open to their ideas, namely the Whig Party, the opposition party in Parliament, um, which is very much in agreement with some of the basic principles of liberty uh, that the Americans are espousing. And then, of course, there's the British masses. So not only are you looking to appeal to the British elites, to the king, to the members of parliament, to the wealthy merchants um, and elites in British society, you're also trying to appeal to British masses. Why? Because you're looking to affect the rational calculus of the British Empire. In other words, you're trying to convince the British that the costs of holding on to the American colonies are far exceed the potential benefits for doing so. Finally, you have the third audience, the international community. And the Americans are very, very aware of the importance of attracting uh, allies to their cause. And as a result, you're looking at the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, the international community in Europe as a whole. And you're doing this for two very good reasons. The first, you're trying to get tangible assets. You're trying to attract allies. And the second is you're trying to send a message to the British that perhaps you need to spend more time worrying about the home front and potential enemies within Europe than you should be uh, toward the United States or toward the Americans. And then finally, other British colonies. The whole message the Americans are trying to send to the British is it's not just us you have to worry about. It's the Canadians. We're always trying to attract the Canadians to our cause. And we're sending a message to other British colonies that yes, you too can rise up. In fact, one of the reasons why George III was so sensitive about the uprising in the American colonies 
is he actually believed in a domino effect. That if I let the American colonies go, then the rest of uh, the colonies of the British Empire are at risk. And this is something that no king would want to preside over. Okay. Uh, this is a, uh, a system of communications, of strategic communications and information operations that I came up with while I was serving in Afghanistan. And it's a way to really break down how you can produce an effective measure, uh, an effective communication strategy uh, to have an impact on the audiences that we're trying uh, to, um, to channel and to, uh, um, to uh, make sure that they understand what we're trying to do and when we're trying to do it. So you break it down into very simple component parts. First, the message. If you're an insurgent, you have to have a message that resonates with the audience. And the best way to do that is to understand that you must grasp onto a legitimate grievance. This is not something you have to make up. You have to be able to identify why people are angry, why they would possibly revolt. And then you have to build your message around that legitimate grievance. If you do not have a legitimate grievance, your message is unlikely to resonate with the population. Next, you need to develop an effective message. You need to spin a message. You need to be able to communicate that message effectively in the simplest terms imaginable. Finally, your actions have to be coordinated with your words. The, the best message is one that is reinforced with action. Otherwise, that message doesn't seem to hold on to and resonate with the audience that you intend to influence. Second, and this is a key, no matter how good your message is, no matter how legitimate your grievance is, if you do not have an effective uh, messenger, a legitimate messenger, then your message will not resonate. Then you need a skilled management and inspirational leader who can not just deliver the message, but then help organize the movement. And here's where the Americans had a wealth of leadership in order to produce a very effective um, message and to get that message out to the audiences. Now, you not only need an effective message, you not only need an effective messenger, you need a channel of communication. You know, and today we, we look at, you know, Al-Qaeda and the way they operate, or the Taliban, and they use, you know, television, uh, the internet, radio. They do a whole series of things that make use of 21st century technology. But the remarkable thing about studying the American Revolution is how wonderful the channels of communications were back in the 18th century. You had committees of correspondence, which basically letter-writing campaigns. You had newspapers in every one of the major colonies. And this got the message out. And the Americans were extraordinarily skilled at developing messages and getting them out through the necessary mediums to get that message out to the masses as a whole and between the colonies. Next, you need an organization. I need to be able to translate my ideas, my messages into action to organize people. And that is one of the keys, and that's one of the great geniuses of people like Sam Adams um, and the rest who are able to organize people very effectively. And then you have to understand your political environment. And here's where the Americans had a unique advantage over the British. We were playing a home game. We understood the contours of the American personality, the American mindset. The British, even though they were our wonderful warm cousins, uh, and even though they had a lot of loyalists um, in the colonies, they were always at a disadvantage. 
And that's what happens with an outside power. If you're an outside power trying to, trying to quell a rebellion, you're always playing catch up to the indigenous forces. Okay, let's talk about now the legitimate message and the legitimate grievance. John Adams had a wonderful way of understanding this. He understood this more so than I think anyone else. Um, in fact, Mao Zedong, the great uh, Chinese communist leader who, who perpetrated the uh, Chinese Civil War, had stages of guerrilla warfare. Um, and he must have studied John Adams because Adams did precisely that. He said, look, we won the war before the war began. Okay, we were able to estrange the hearts and minds of the American public uh, against the king prior to the actual violent acts that were committed that started the entire revolution. He understood that a successful revolution needs to be a strong political ground game. And if you don't have that political ground game, if you're not organizing the people before the revolution actually begins, if you're not getting that message out, then you have no way of actually defeating the enemy because the enemy is going to be vastly superior in conventional arms. And this is one of the wonderful things about studying insurgents. If you, you know, take a page out of economics, right? Comparative, um, uh, comparative advantage in economics. Comparative advantage, advantage in economics simply means a state does what it does best. Every state, no matter rich or poor, can produce something more effectively than other states. So if it specializes in what it does best, it can actually have an impact on the marketplace and prosper. Well, in warfare, it's the same way. If you are weak in conventional arms, if you're not a powerful group of individuals with a large military behind it, then what do you do? You specialize in that which you do best. And here what we find is that the weak normally focus more on strategic communications, information operations, the propaganda war, than do the strong. And the, the answer to that is, is rather simple. They do it because they have no choice. Right? You have to focus on what you can do best. And here, the Americans did it extraordinarily well. You know, we today we talk in contemporary politics about soundbites. Name me a soundbite that resonates as well as no taxation without representation. I mean, that's just a wonderful soundbite. And if you can't get behind that, what can you get behind if you're an American? And this, by the way, resonates with the British population as well, particularly the Whigs because they understand that the whole foundation in the post-Magna Carta era of Britain is about no taxation without representation. Speaking of which, uh, one of my heroes, Edmund Burke, uh, a member of parliament in the Whig Party, the loyal opposition to King George, stated it best when he warned the British parliament, do not go to war with the Americans. It does not make sense to go to war with the Americans because you are going to war with the very principles upon which Britain stands. How does a nation go to war over its own principles? It's undermining the very fabric of British society. And yet, Edmund Burke understands something at the, the complexity of the situation in which he faces. He understands that the Americans stand for the very principles upon which England is founded, and yet he understands that there's this wonderful empire that they've built. And while that empire may have been built upon force, it was dangerous to let it go. 
And therefore, he understood that the British Parliament and the king were in a very difficult situation. We're at war with our very principles, and yet can we risk losing the empire? Now, there was another very famous book that came out during this period. You might have heard about it. It's called The Wealth of Nations, uh, produced in 1776. Uh, and the author of that book said during the American Revolution, why? Why go to war with the Americans? You want to make money off the Americans, and you don't make as much money if you're killing them. It's markets that you want. If you can dominate the market, why do you want to dominate them politically? Um, it was a very pragmatic argument. So there were a lot of intellectuals during this period of time who understood that the precarious nature of going to war against the Americans to hold the empire together. And they argued vociferously that the best way is to resolve it politically, not militarily. Now you need skilled leadership. And look at the plethora of wonderful leaders. And, and I could have put up three times more uh, pictures of, of our leaders. Uh, they are not only incredibly well-educated and articulate, they were well-steeped in political philosophy and history. And they were, for the most part, magnificent, magnificent speakers. A keen grasp of contemporary and classical rhetoric. So the American Revolution was indeed a conservative revolution in many ways. And it was steeped in British philosophy and steeped in John Locke and the social contract theories of British and French philosophers. So this was nothing alien to the British and to the European population. They were using the very principles that had become accepted, widely accepted, in British um, and European political philosophy to make their argument for independence. And notice these. Each one of these individuals are members of the elite. This is not a revolution led by the masses. This is a revolution, like most revolutions, led by elites. Now, speaking of elites, um, we'll talk about somebody who's near and dear to my heart, Sam Adams. Sam Adams is a fascinating individual. Why? Because there are two Sam Adams. The Sam Adams to the left, which is near and dear to my heart, it's the Sam Adams uh, beer logo. Um, and I chose that because Sam was particularly good at advocating for the masses and organizing groups of radicals that would eventually become the foundation uh, for the Sons of Liberty. And this Adams was a true radical, someone who early on understood uh, that the British were probably not going to compromise, that the only solution was going to be to break away from the British Empire. He came, he came to this earlier than most of the radicals. And every revolution needs that essential radical who keeps pushing the envelope. And Sam Adams is one of those individuals. But not only does he provide the rhetoric and the organizational skill, but he provides the strategy for the initial stages of the revolution. Now, he's not acting alone in any time, but he's one of the key components to this. The other side of Sam Adams is the Harvard-educated, erudite, articulate political theorist. And he wrote his, actually, master's thesis at, on, at uh, Harvard University uh, 
and that the focus of the thesis was when is it okay, when is it justified for a people to rise up against the magistrate. So this is something that early on he had at least been thinking about. And he writes one of the great treatises of this period of time in 1772, The Rights of the Colonists. And here it's a very intellectual argument about why the colonists have a right to rebel against the king, or more specifically against the parliament. So what happens here is you have two sides. The elite side of Sam Adams. The Sam Adams who's making these wonderfully intellectual political arguments to justify the rebellion. And it's written at a very high level and it's focused on American and European intellectuals. And it's read widely throughout the colonies. And then you have the other side, the pragmatic Sam Adams. The radical who behind closed doors is planning the revolt. And he wasn't afraid to lie. While Adams, the well-educated elite of Boston community, is talking about political justifications and quoting the great classical and contemporary political theorists, he's also mounting a disinformation campaign that is absolutely stunningly successful. What is he doing? Oh, he's blaming the British for raping women, for stealing, for not obeying the Sabbath, anything that he can come up with to denigrate the enemy. The wonderful things about this is that, frankly, most of these were lies. The British soldiers were professionals. They behaved accordingly. And very rarely did they do any of the things that Sam Adams accused them of doing. But when you're starting a revolt, when you're starting a revolt, facts and lies sometimes are mixed together. Anything to effectively get the people to rebel. And Adams understood this. You can appeal to the mind only so much. You must appeal to the emotions to get people actually out of their chairs doing something. Particularly when he, thought, when he tries to appeal to the masses. And here's the organizational structure. And um, what I like to title it so that people really understand the Sons of Liberty, is to understand them as the American Liberation Organization, to use 21st century or 20th century terms, because that's precisely what it is. It's a liberation organization. It's a covert operation to undermine British control of American society. And then look at how well it's planned. If anybody knows anything about, uh, if, if studied um, uh, the Irish Republican Army, uh, they divided between Sinn Féin the political arm, and then the military arm of the Irish Republican Army. Why? Because they wanted to be able to present a legitimate face to the world community, and they also wanted to be able to uh, do the dirty work necessary uh, to create a rebellion. And that's precisely what happens with the Sons of Liberty. On the one hand, you have Sam Adams. Now, there are others intimately involved. I'm simplifying here. There are many others involved um, in the Sons of Liberty. Uh, but Sam seems to be the cog in the wheel that keeps everything going. On the right, you have the military wing of the Sons of Liberty. And these are, for lack of a better term, the thugs. You need thugs if you're revolting. You need them because they're going to do the dirty work. They're going to undermine the stability of the region. 
You need to destabilize the community in order to increase the costs of British rule. You want to send a message to the British or to any counterinsurgent, no matter what you do, I can continue to destabilize this. 2,000 men led by one of my favorite guys, Ebenezer McIntosh, I just love the name, um, but he was the head thug, and he was the one who coordinated. He went to pubs, he looked for what we all look for when we're trying to get troublemakers, young men. And he would uh, go to, where do you go for young men who are angry? You go to the pubs, right? Um, and you, you convince them of the right, righteousness of your cause, and then you organize them, and you go about creating instability. Next, you had the political wing. This is the Sinn Féin uh, wing of the American Liberation Organization. These are the community leaders. This is the face, the legitimate face that you want to put before the international community and to the American people. These are the community leaders who people want to follow. The John Adams, the Sam Adams, the Paul Rivers, the John Hancocks, the James Otis. These are the individuals that are going out and making the intellectual argument the intellectual justification for the rebellion. And then you need a medium. How do I get this message out? And here you investigate the relationship that Sam Adams with the Boston Gazette. Sam Adams, for all intents and purposes, was one of the key operators of the Boston Gazette. He would write continually under pseudonyms, uh, making the argument for the revolution. He would justify the Boston massacre. He would do a whole series of things. He had an intimate relationship with the publishers um, of the Boston Gazette. So what happens here is that one of the leaders of the rebellion had a direct relationship with the key newspaper of the city. That's the way to get your message out. And that's the way you frame the narrative of the revolt. The narrative is always being framed by the colonists. And that's important because the message that's getting out is that the British are the bad guys and the Americans are only fighting for their basic freedoms. And they're only doing what is absolutely necessary. Now, the other method. You aren't just using newspapers. You are also using these wonderfully organized committees of correspondence. And essentially, a committee of correspondence is you get a whole bunch of people together and you write letters. You write letters about what's going on. And you send those letters to your friends and relatives in other colonies. And then they send these letters to their friends and relatives of other colonies. And that's the way you spread the information campaign. So this is a very sophisticated method of communication. And by this period of time, you had well over 100 committees of correspondence sprinkled throughout all of the colonies. This is the way you got information in a very, very effective and efficient fashion from one colony to the next. You are outdoing the British who were never organized in that fashion. I like to think of the committees of correspondence in the 21st century context as bloggers. I mean, think about it. They're, they're 18th century bloggers. It's precisely what they're doing. And like bloggers, they mix fact with fiction. And like bloggers, they're not particularly accountable for what they say which is precisely what's happening during this period of time. 
The Sons of Liberty. Let's, little, let's investigate the Sons of Liberty a little bit more because they're absolutely fascinating. The British, of course, called them the Sons of Violence. And, well, that's pretty accurate, frankly. Uh, these were the thugs uh, who were organized to destabilize Boston and other colonies or other cities. Um, and here you have a wonderful example of this in the Royal Distributor of Stamps. Remember, the Stamp Act comes along in 65, and the Americans really resent this. But think about this as a miscalculation. The Stamp Act is a tax on the means of communication in the colonies. Newspapers, all official documents have to be stamped by the, by the royal colony. As a result, you are taxing the elites, and not just the elites, the information elites. Think about this, if I wanna start a rebellion, who should I anger the most? Elites who control communication channels. Very, very bad mistake on the part of the Brits. As a result, they begin to organize. And during this time, the royal distributor of, of stamps, the person who has the worst job in the colonies, um, is the focal point for the American anger and the Sons of Liberty organization against it. So what do they do with poor, poor Andrew Oliver? Well, they build an effigy for him. And then they begin to whack it. And they begin to mock him. And then they move uh, the masses to outside of his home. And while outside of his home, they do things like decapitate the effigy, burn the effigy. And the crowd is having a wonderful time. And the crowd is so large that local British officials decide not to intervene because they'll have a riot on their hands. They're vastly outnumbered, which is the plan for the Sons of Liberty. So as the crowd begins to bore, they get bored and they begin to dissipate, Macintosh organizes another crowd that goes back to his house, stones his house, and then later around midnight ransacks Oliver's house. Now, Oliver gets this rather subtle message uh, and decides to leave, he and his family. So these are the kinds of things that they're doing in order to send a rather unsubtle message to the British that not only do we resent the fact that you're trying to impose taxes on us in which we didn't vote for, uh, but we're also gonna make it extraordinarily difficult for you to actually collect those taxes. You remember this in grammar school? I remember seeing this picture as a kid thinking, oh, how funny this is, how, how wonderfully uh, you know, comical to, to watch this. And then, of course, I started studying it for real, and I understood what it meant to be tarred and feathered. Uh, back then, tarring and feathering, this has been around since the Crusades. This is not some, nothing new that the Americans made up. Uh, it's just something that we had a lot of fun with. Um, one of the things that you did when you tarred and feathered people is you had to heat the tar up to about 140 degrees Fahrenheit, about six degrees Celsius. Uh, and then what happened is you either poured the hot tar on the individual, you stripped them down to his waist, poured it or painted it on the individual, which means in three seconds he was in severe burns. And then what you did is you rolled the individual in the feathers. And the feathers would stick to them for days upon days. And then you put them on a cart and you paraded them through town. Now, no one, no, there are no records of anyone dying from tarring and feathering. Uh, but you can imagine the excruciating pain and the humiliation that goes along with this. So while as a child I look at, looked at this and thought it funny, today I look at it and go, wow, that's, that's, really, that's, that's really terrible. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing to do to another human being. Uh, so when we look at the revolt the Americans carried out against the British, you have to look at the ugly side of revolts. Revolts are very rarely nonviolent. And they're always perpetrated with the best of intentions, but carried out with the less best of, least best of intentions. Boston Massacre. Boston Massacre is one of my favorite events in the American Revolution uh, because it is fabricated to a significant degree. During this period of time, it was a cold winter night in Boston, which we're all, I'm all too familiar with. Um, and during this period of time, what happened here um, is the guards were guarding the, the British guards were guarding the Custom House uh, during this period of time. And a few Americans came about and began to heckle the guards. Now, these are good British soldiers. And they stayed at their guard for a long period of time, not responding. But during the change of guards, uh, one of the British guards decides, I've had enough with this particular individual, um, and hit him with the butt of his rifle on the head. Now, when the Boston Massacre uh, begins to perpetrate the axe, what happens is the individual, Garrick, runs to um, an area, a local house, and begins to tell people about what happened to him. And he's got blood on his, on his head. Now, what happens as a result of this is the church bells begin to ring. Now, in 18th century Boston, if church bells ring at night, it's for one reason, fire. Cities are built of wood. Fire is a very, very serious, dangerous problem. So when church bells begin to ring at, at night, that means people usually came out, volunteers, with buckets of water uh, and anything they could use to stop the fire, to put the fire out. But then hundreds of people began to gather. There were no flames at the Custom House. There was no smoke anywhere. And they didn't come out with buckets of water. They came out with, came out with bludgeons, sticks, stones. Perhaps, perchance, was this planned? Maybe. So what happens? The, the British troops are becoming aware that there's going to be a riot on their hands. They still have not fired a shot. Uh, the British call in eight more troops to try to quell the rebellion, try to you know, calm people down. Um, and then, of course, a shot is fired. No one knows who shot the first, you know, who, who was the first uh, person to, to fire a shot. No one knows that. It lives in, in myth. It could have been a British soldier trying to defend themselves. It could have been an American trying to rev up even more problems. Um, but what happens is a few people are killed. A few people are hurt. And what happens after that is that Sam Adams goes into spin control mode. And what he does is he writes an article. Guess where? In the Boston Gazette. And the title of the article is a completely objective analysis of what actually occurs, a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. Uh, this is a wonderful campaign to try to rev up anger against the British. Um, and then this is, and, and, and one of my all-time favorite individuals here is, is Paul Revere, because Paul Revere is the artist of the revolution. And what he does is he writes and he, and he creates um, the Bloody Massacre, and he, he creates a piece of art called the Bloody Massacre. And the wonderful thing about this, and this is why Paul is always going to be near and dear to my heart, 
is he creates this wonderful artwork and then, like a good American, he sells it. <laughs> you gotta love that. That's just a wonderful thing. Yes, I'm a true revolutionary, but you know, I'm an American. I'm gonna make a profit out of this. Um, some cool factoids here. And this is where you begin to understand. Remember, you, the, the Sons of Liberty are a covert operation. They're a revolutionary movement that does things in secret. And then you begin to put the pieces together, like I would try to trace how the Taliban work or how Al-Qaeda work. You trace back and see what the connections are. And you find that Sam Adams, for example, and John Hancock were fire wards. They were organizing the fire, the, the volunteer firemen. They were one of the community leaders. So is it simply a coincidence that the Boston Massacre in the, in the, in the church bells ring late at night? And yet people seem to be organized already. Is it possible there's a connection between the two? 30 out of the 40 Boston fire wards belong to the Sons of Liberty. This was a well-organized covert operation. The Hutchison Letters Affair, and this is where you bring in, of course, one of our all-time all favorites, Ben Franklin, to this. Franklin, of course, is the American representative in the colonies. And um, he uh, re represented to Great Britain in the colonies. And while he's in London, he gets an uh, anonymous series of letters sent to him, penned by the royal governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson. And here in these letters, that are smuggled to Ben Franklin, is Hutchinson making the argument to Parliament and the King to send more troops. These Americans are getting out of control. They need some tough love. Now, you can imagine when Ben Franklin reads these letters, the first thing he thinks of is, ooh, these are incendiary, right? I can really use those. But he thinks twice about it because as the American representative to the Parliament, um, Franklin has to be very careful about what he does and does not do. So what he does is he sends them to his friends back in the colonies, the Adams, and says, I just thought you should be aware of this please don't make it public. It's printed in the Boston Gazette not too long afterwards. And of course, this makes Hutchinson incredibly popular uh, with the colonists. Um, and this is the beginning of the, of the part where Adams is using any information he can to build a case against the British and make an already unpopular governor, governor even more unpopular. His point is to drive Hutchinson out of the colonies. And again, the artist of the revolution, Paul Revere, the rebel engraver, decides he's going to depict Hutchinson in a completely objective fashion as Satan himself. Um, and again, what he does with this is he puts this out, and it becomes a popular way of um, making people understand how bad the governor really is, and of course he's making a profit on it. The Boston Tea Party. All of these things we've, we've read in, in grammar school and in our history classes when we were young, uh, but let's just add a little more color to the Boston Tea Party. Uh, December 1773. The Boston Tea Party is absolutely fascinating because it is indeed a party. That's what I love about it. In fact, like every party, it has to have an invitation. And these are literally pamphlets put across Boston telling people what was going to happen. 
So they gathered thousands of people, and they actually had to move the original meeting twice because more people came than they actually imagined. And then what happened is they took advantage of the numbers. And with the British ships um, in dock in Boston, remember this is all revolves around the tax on tea. And here you really have to empathize with the Brits. The Brits impose nominal taxes, right, to pay for the French and Indian War. In other words, to pay for the defense of American colonists against the French and their allies, the Native Americans. So the Brits are just trying to make the money back that they had paid for in, in securing the American colonists. So they just raised taxes a little bit. And because the Americans were so angry about a lot of the tax, they repealed much of the tax. But the one tax they left on was the tax on tea. And to make it more palatable to the Americans, they said, we're going to actually lower the price of tea so it's actually cheaper for you to buy, but we're going to keep this tax on for the principle of it. And of course, the Americans would have none of that. So when the ships came in with their tax, I mean with their tea, the Americans, of course, refused to unload it, refused uh, to buy it, uh, and they wanted to make a point that there's no way they were going to accept this tax. So they organized the Boston Tea Party by literally inviting as many people as possible to this event and then proceeded to dump it into the harbor. And we're talking about millions of dollars worth of tea. This is not something uh, that the British could just nearly wink at. This was an absolute abject affront to British power. And it was something that the British Empire could no longer withstand. And remember, the British have been very, very patient with their poor American cousins. They have been trying to resolve this time and time again. And it's the, they're using carrots and sticks through this entire period of time. Yes, we will tax you. Why? Because it's for your benefit. We, it costs a lot of money to secure you guys. Can't you understand that, my American cousin? To which the Americans said, no, no taxation without representation. I was always amazed that the British never said, OK, give me, th give me 13 people. Come over. Now shut up and pay the taxes. Uh, but they never did that. I think that would have resolved a lot of problems early on. And remember, at the outset of the rebellion, Americans were seeking liberty within the confines of the British Empire. This is a revolt that you know, it creates momentum over time. And if the British had compromised early on, then it's perhaps, we still could probably be British citizens. We'd have better accents, better TV. It'd be wonderful. Um, but instead, what happens is the British refuse to compromise enough early on. Now, I brought that up for, for a purpose. Even as late as 1774, John Dickinson, who was a reluctant rebel, still wanted to have maintained American loyalty and part of the British Empire as long as possible. And they petitioned the king, King George III, and they say essentially to the king, Sire, we love you. We're your loyal subjects, okay? It's the parliament we're having a problem with. They keep doing this taxation without representation. Please resolve this issue. Now, by 1774, the Americans have already been rebelling for quite some time. So it's, in my view, it's, it's kind of a, a lot of chutzpah on the part of the Americans uh, to send this petition to, to, to King George. And George does what I thought any king would do. He gets angry at him. So enough is enough. I've treated you too delicately. It's time. 
So let's look at the British public diplomacy during this period of time. Remember, the British Empire is not one of the greatest empires in world history for nothing. They have some very astute policies here. First thing is during the Boston Tea Party, there's a legend that an, uh, a British admiral once popped his head out during the Tea Party and said, okay, gentlemen, have your fun today, but soon you'll have to pay the fiddler. Um, well, this is paying the fiddler. The British now have had enough. And by this period, the coercive acts are passed by Parliament, what the Americans call the Intolerable Acts. And essentially, it is to punish the rebellion in Boston. Boston is the core of the American rebellion. This is where the true radicals are. And they intend to punish the radicals. They've tried enough with compromise. They've tried to reason with the Americans. Now it was time to punish them. And they passed a whole series of acts. The Quartering Act which forced the American colonists to actually put the British up in their own home, homes. They literally had an embargo against Boston Harbor until all tariffs were paid. Uh, they, they did a whole series of things through the Administrative Act of Justice, which meant that if you were accused of a crime, they could literally take you out of Boston to try you to another British colony or even back to Britain itself, because they understood that no Boston jury would convict um, a Bostonian of rebellion against the king. So all of these acts were made to actually revoke the Boston, Massachusetts Charter and to bring the colony under more firm control um, of the British government. This was a punishment, and the, Amer and the Americans saw this just as that, an intolerable punishment. So what do the British do? They pass the acts, the Americans still rebel, um, so they do what any empire would do. They send the troops. And they send Thomas Gage to lead the troops. Now, the fascinating thing about uh, the way the British military operated back then is that uh, the British commander, the military commanders, uh, were two hats. They were the military leaders, but they were also allowed to negotiate. They had diplomatic powers at the time. So because of the massive, uh, you know, geography, the, the separation uh, between the, uh, the Great Britain and the United States and the Atlantic Ocean, they gave their military leaders an extraordinary amount of leeway to negotiate uh, political agreements as well as uh, to use the military instrument of international politics. Engage did both. And what he said when he first came here is, look, I will give amnesty to all of the leaders of the American Rebellion except two people, John Hancock and, of course, Sam Adams. This is eloquent testimony to how well the British understood who the true leaders were, the two radicals who were propelling the revolution. It didn't work out so well for, with Gage, right? The Americans didn't capitulate, they didn't give up Adams, and when Gage went out looking for the stores of weapons, we all know what happened at Concord and Lexington. And the war went on and on. Now, by 1774, the British were looking for ways to increase pressure on the Americans, and they passed what's called the Quebec Act. Remember, the Americans are constantly trying to get the Canadians to rebel as well. So the British passed the Quebec Act to tell particularly, I mean, who are the most radical of all the Canadians? The French Catholic Canadians, right? The Quebecois. Um, and as a result, what happens is the king and parliament understand that they're the group that is most likely to rebel against the crown during this period. So they pass the Quebec Act, which says to the French, 
you no longer have to pay homage to the Church of England. You can be practicing Catholics. You don't have to take an oath of allegiance to the Church of England. And then they're going to add some monetary incentives here, and they're going to say, uh, land west of northern Illinois into Minnesota. That is open to you to colonize, to control. And this act backfires dramatically on the British. Yes, it mollifies the Canadians, but it gets the Americans even more angry at the British. Why? Because there are two things the Americans really despise. First are Catholics. They're good Protestants. They don't trust the Catholics. And second, they're land speculators. American elites are deeply involved in land speculation out west. People like, oh, George Washington, uh, Daniel Boone, they become wealthy through land speculation. So if you're cutting off all of this land to their ability to make money off it, you're going to get them even more angry uh, than you would have otherwise. Now let's look at wartime strategic communications uh, and information operations that the British pursue. You look for weaknesses. What aspect of your enemy? Where is your enemy weakest? What vulnerabilities, what critical vulnerabilities can I exploit against my enemy? Well, a large segment of American population are enslaved. And the British understand that if they can create slave rebellions and they can induce slaves to actually work on behalf of the British cause, that they can disrupt American society and they can create all kinds of problems for the Americans. And so they issue a proclamation telling African Americans, if you assist the British, then you will get freedom after the war is over. This does not, however, apply to loyalists. So if you are a loyalist American fighting on behalf of the British, your slaves do not have this option. Only to those who are rebelling against the crown. It's a very kind of a delicate maneuver here. And there are since a lot of people, Washington, George Washington is very afraid of this. Remember, some of the leaders of the rebellion, Jefferson, Washington, these are all large slaveholders. So this is a real threat. And what happens here is instead of helping the British, this actually backfires on the British because it solidifies southern opposition to the Brits. Because if you begin to threaten their peculiar institution, you are threatening the very foundation of the southern economy and their social uh, way of life. So in fact, while this seems like a perfect idea on paper, paper, it actually backfires on the British. Now, on the eve of the Battle of Long Island, which is one of the worst defeats uh, for the Americans during the revolt, um, the British do something very clever. They have printing presses on their ships, and they print letters, proclamation of amnesty. If only you will come to the crown. We will forgive you all your sins if you pledge allegiance, renew your allegiance to the crown. And then we won't go after you, we won't try to confiscate your homes, we won't try to arrest you. So it was a wonderful information campaign to soften resistance. And it was a wonderful combination of British might and British astute political maneuverings to undercut the rebellion. And then six months to eight months later, they reissued the proclamation. And one of the reasons New York stays 
stable for the British until the very end of the American Revolution is because of this combination of military victory and uh, political diplomacy. Now, by this period, by 1777, the war's been going on, the rebellion's been going on for quite some time, and the British Parliament says, you know, the costs are beginning now to, to exceed the benefits holding on to the colonies, and we need to do something about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to issue a commission, and we're going to send the commission, the Carlisle Commission, to the Americas to negotiate an end to this conflict. And the British compromise tremendously. They essentially give the Americans self-rule, but still within the context of the British Empire. Had they done this in 1775, it no doubt would have ended the rebellion. But two years later, it was far too late. One of the keys that we always teach our students at the Naval War College is that in warfare, timing is everything. Here, the Carlisle Commission was too little too late. Because now you had the battles of Trenton and Princeton that demonstrated the Americans could actually defeat the British. And you had the imposition of the French as a result of the Battle of Saratoga and Franklin's masterful diplomacy in France. So by this time then, the momentum had shifted to the Americans, and the Americans weren't willing to now compromise. Perennial problem with counterinsurgency. You know, we look at this today. I mean, it's, it's oftentimes we ask ourselves when we're in Afghanistan, um, are we doing more harm than good? Are we creating more insurgents than we're defeating? Uh, well, this is exactly uh, what General Clinton was worried about with the Americans. Uh, just, just to read it, for if, I, if as I have often before suggested, the goodwill of the inhabitants are absolutely, is absolutely requisite to retain a country after we have conquered it, I fear it will be some time before we recover the confidence of the people of North Carolina. In other words, when you bring down the hammer, you may be able to successfully quell the rebellion for a while, but you may have lost hearts and minds forever. The Americans, their communications program. Like I said at the outset, we were very concerned uh, with covert operations, and we were quite good at it. The Americans, the Second Continental Congress, created a whole system of covert operations, of secret committees to raise money, uh, to uh, support the rebellion, to buy arms from the French and the Spanish, uh, to carry out raids on the British coast. They also had secret committees of correspondence to get intelligence about what was going on in the colonies. These were very sophisticated operations. And here's someone we should all thank, Robert Morris, Morris was the financier of the American Revolution, the richest man in the colonies during the period, uh, and he literally gave up much of his wealth to the cause. The Declaration of Independence, the single best piece of propaganda ever created uh, by anyone. Of course, that's an objective analysis on my part, uh, but I truly believe it. This is a perfect document for strategic communications. It is a wonderful mix. Remember what the Declaration of Independence does. It lays out the justification, the crimes of the crown, how it's forcing the Americans, despite all of their best wishes, to rebel against the crown and seek independence. So the first thing that Jefferson says is, here are the reasons why the acts of the parliament and the king. And then he goes about giving the political justification 
the political theory behind it. And he even puts Marx in the Declaration of Independence for because he realizes that a lot of this is going to be spoken. You'd have people gather in the public square or in the pubs, and they would read the Declaration of Independence. So Jefferson put little markings here, pause here, emphasize this clause. This is a wonderful strategic communications document. It was very effective. And it was mass produced and sent throughout all of the colonies to get the ideas out and the justification out. And it appealed not just to the domestic audience, it appealed to the international audience. In fact, there are at least two statements in the Declaration of Independence that appeal to the international community itself. He's not just writing this to the Americans. He's saying to the world, here's why we're rebellion, here's, why we're, here's the justification for it, and please, help us. Okay, now we're getting, if you don't like anyone else in this revolution, you have to like uh, ben Franklin. I call him the diplomat of love because that's precisely what he was. Uh, the amazing thing is uh, Jefferson is an old man uh, when he is representing the United States or the Americans in, uh, in Paris. Uh, but he's an old man that uh, is filled with charm, uh, erudite, witty. He is already an international rock star. Uh, he has written bestsellers. He's a noted scientist, a noted intellectual, and a noted wit. Uh, people in the high society in Paris would fight to get him to uh, be uh, the part of their parties. An invitation uh, that would read, Benjamin Franklin will be joining us, is an invitation that would make you instantly popular. And Franklin understood this. When he first approached French society, it was very difficult for him to make inroads into the elite in French society. The men were busy at work, the men were busy in politics, and they looked a bit askance at, at this ruffian American. And Franklin played this up beautifully, magnificently. Here's a wonderful quote from him. He's writing home, and he goes, here's the image I portray to the powderheads in Paris. I wear very, look at this, the, you know, the, um, the wonderful coonskin cap. Franklin grew up in the city, in Boston and Philadelphia. He was an urban boy. He was a city boy. And yet he dressed like a frontiersman. This was all an act. It was all a wonderful act. Dressed in very plain coat, coonskin cap, without a powdered wig of the day. So he came across as, you know, the, the Rousseau's noble savage. This idea that the new world, untainted by the corrupt nature of European society, was a new breed of man, pure simple and wonderfully entertaining. And so what Franklin did in order to make his way into elites in society is that he made his way into the women of elite Parisian society uh, in terms of social and in terms of um, other ways. Uh, he was a real romantic. Uh, and as a result, he understood that if I could win over uh, the elite women of French society, I would get to the men, and that's precisely what he does. Uh, and then he creates a compelling argument. He's not only entertaining, what he does is he says, when he makes his argument to the Count Vergennes, who was the foreign minister of uh, the French king, Louis XVI, uh, he makes the argument to Vergennes, look, this is in your interest to get involved in this. You can bleed the British white by helping us rebel against them. 
Remember, the French have just lost wars against the British. The British are the preeminent superpower of the day. The French are their mortal enemies. So the French, while can't directly attack the British because they're not powerful enough, use an indirect approach to support the American rebellion. And what Franklin keeps telling Vergennes and French elites in society is that, look, we may make peace with the British, and that's the last thing you want. So you have to come in on our side. Because if you don't come in on our side soon, our markets will not be open to you if the British, if we make peace with the Brits. So he makes an economic, political, and philosophical argument. To elites in, British, in French society, he makes the philosophical Rousseauian arguments. To Vergennes and the king, he makes a pragmatic argument, fight your enemy in a cost-effective fashion. And by the way, the Americans are rebelling, and he, he, he grossly exaggerates the number of troops and arms. And then he, he um, recruits people like Lafayette um, and others who will come to the United States or to the Americas uh, and help the Americans build a truly modern conventional army. So he does this all in French society while at the same time having one heck of a time for, him, for himself personally. And then any war, any war needs incremental dividends. And an incremental dividend is something that keeps people fighting. It can be a small tactical victory or it can be an idea. And here, Thomas Paine plays a wonderful role in the American revolt. In the depths of Valley Forge, when the Americans are looking very badly, when the British have had one successful battle against the Americans after another, Washington is very concerned that his troops are, are the morale of the troops are really low, and that some may actually be vanishing back to their home to put the crops in. He has the Americans, uh, his officers, read Thomas Paine's works to his troops. And Paine is a remarkable, go back and read uh, Common Sense uh, and his other writings. Because what he does is he's, he writes for the masses. He's not writing a political treatise for the elites. He's using uh, images of agriculture, of contemporary history, of American mythology to make the argument that the American rebellion is pure and will succeed. It's something that is remarkably powerful to the American public. Indeed, by the end of the revolution, one out of every two white Americans have ever either read Thomas Paine's work or have heard it. 500,000 copies of his work are produced. And Paine, unlike Paul Revere, doesn't make a cent. Paine actually dedicates the revenue to the cause. You can't have a rebellion that works without this. Um, I think I've gone over my time. I'll skip the highlighted operations because I want to encourage question and answers. I apologize. I uh, have a couple of things to talk about with the American Revolution uh, itself on the American side, but we'll skip over so that I can um, have time to answer any questions. I appreciate your attention, and, and thank you very much. I'm Charlie Porter. Uh, how big a risk did they run of ending up being hanged? Uh, well, certainly uh, Nathan Hale ran quite a risk. 
Um, very much so. Uh, in fact, uh, that's one of the gauge's uh, points was to round up uh, the leaders of the rebellion, particularly Adams. Sam Adams was, Sam Adams and Hancock were the ones who the British had identified early on. Um, and look, the way to stop a rebellion, today in the 21st century we call it decapitation. You take the leaders out. And the British certainly tried to do so. Sir. My name is Jim Pucinich. Uh My question deals with Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Jefferson wrote that 30,000 slaves left to fight for the British and 27,000 of them died of smallpox. Is that, is that accurate? Well, as, um, as the, uh, I was introduced, I'm a political scientist, not a historian. Um, so I don't know the names of horses or the, the, the details. What I do know is that the British, um, when they attracted slaves and they attracted African Americans to the cause, they actually put them on the worst duties. They were essentially the garbage collectors uh, for the British. So they created these black regiments, but they didn't treat them as equals. Um, so they gave them the worst jobs. And as a result, uh, the disease was a, a rampant problem. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was a, a truly very difficult problem. Ma'am. Hi. I was wondering if in your work you formulated a sense of what made Sam Adams so radical. What in his background led him to such an extreme position? You know, that's a great question. His father was uh, political. He grew up in a household uh, that politics was constantly discussed. He heard his father speak before crowds. Um, and uh, Sam was well-educated, well-steeped in political philosophy. Uh, I, I actually think that it's the Bostonian mindset, very independent, stubborn Yankee, uh, that I think one of the fundamental reasons is because the British were so generous in their rule over the Americans. I mean, remember, the Americans were the most literate people in the world. The per capita income of the average American far exceeded the average British per capita income. So we were the ultimate adolescent spoiled brats. We were given a tremendous amount of freedom. We were wealthy. We had a larger percentage of Americans owned their own land than any other people uh, in Europe by far and away. So when you give people too much freedom and then you try to pull that freedom back, I think that's going to create a rebellion. Uh, so the irony of it all is if the British had been a little tougher, perhaps the Americans wouldn't have revolted. Or it's just something about being a part of a large, large, uh, continent, this feeling that if things don't work out, you can always make your way west, and that sense of independence. I think all of those things figured into the American Rebellion. Sir. Hi there. Um, thanks very much for coming. Um, Thank you. I, I don't know. Um, have you seen in your experience abroad, um, our enemies actually learning from our experience in the American Revolution and um, if they have been, um, to what degree have they been successful? Well, I, my direct experience in Afghanistan, uh, they, they know nothing of American history. They, don't, they know very little of American culture or politics, and they certainly don't understand us. Um, what we have found is that they have learned much from uh, Mao. Uh, and the writings of Mao have had an impact. Um, as have uh, the writings of Sun Tzu. So there is direct evidence, uh, particularly with bin Laden, uh, that he had become familiar with these writings. 
So I don't see them using the American Revolt as an example because they're not that well educated. Uh, I know that in the Vietnam War, uh, that Ho Chi Minh oftentimes uh, would quote the American founders uh, to justify his rebellion. Uh, but as far as contemporary actors, I haven't seen any evidence of that. It's possible, it's very possible that, it, that they have, but the, most of the evidence I've come across has been more Mao uh, and um, more contemporary writings. Thank you. Thank you. Sir. Uh, did the British learn anything uh, from this war, uh, a different type of war, for instance, the, uh, uh, the war for Irish independence? Yes, they learned much. Uh, they learned to be much more brutal, uh, particularly uh, throughout some of their other colonies. And then I think in the long term, the British learned that the best way to keep an alliance together is to largely give independence, self-rule. And you know, the, the, the creation of the British Commonwealth is the ultimate answer to the problem they have of the rebellion of, within their colonies. So they're going to learn over the long run how to deal with this. Uh, but the initial, uh, I think, lessons learned is to be much harsher. But again, they have much more to lose. I mean, this is losing the colonies. Remember, the American colonies are not the great money maker of the British Empire. The Indies are, the West Indies are. Um, the, the islands, because of rum and sugar and, 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 and other goods, uh, create vastly more wealth for the British Empire than do the American colonies, even though we produced uh, wood for ships and we produced a lot of uh, the sailors for the British fleets. Um, but we were not the great money maker that other colonies were Good. at that time. Thank you. Hi. Uh, Benedict Arnold was a member of the Sons of Liberty, I believe, and he was also a leader of his uh, local militia. And I think he might have been close to Mr. Warren in Boston. In your research and findings, have you ever found that he showed a lot of leadership in those early stages, or was he just a member? Oh, Arnold was a wonderful general. Um, and in fact, uh, I think one of the reasons why Arnold is going to turn against uh, the Americans is because he wins victory after victory and others take credit for those victories. Uh, so uh, in many ways, Benedict Arnold sees himself as well justified uh, for turning traitor. Uh, so some of the key victories of the early part of the American Revolution are the result of uh, Arnold's incredible leadership, military leadership. But then again, when you have a massive ego and your ego isn't uh, satisfied because your, the leadership isn't giving you enough credit for those, then um, you begin to look elsewhere. And that's precisely what happened to Arnold. One more question? Yeah. Once the revolution began, could you characterize the role and the scope of espionage in the strategic interaction? We kind of have a children's book idea of people smuggling letters around, but what was the reality like, particularly for, say, American spies? Well, the reality was much more sophisticated. We were really good at this stuff. Uh, remember, you had the secret committees of correspondence uh, that were not just passing information, but intelligence um, about troop movements, about uh, ca uh, caches of weapons, uh, strategy. Uh, Washington, again, was very, very concerned with operational security. Uh, we had double agents working within the British uh, uh, Army. But remember, the, the, the British also had the, the basic acceptance of the American population was one-third at the outset, one-third were for the rebellion, one-third were neutral, and about one-third remained loyal to the, to the crown. 
uh, particularly in the South. Uh, so the British had a large population to exploit uh, for intelligence and to actually recruit to the cause, militarily to the cause. Um, so you had sophisticated intelligence networks on both parts. Uh, the Americans, again, because they were playing a home game, um, had a unique advantage. But the Sons of Liberty were organized in every one of the major colonies. And these were covert operations used to attract people to the cause, to destabilize the region, uh, and to propagate uh, the information campaign that was so successful for the Americans. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I'd like to uh, thank Professor Genest for a uh, truly unorthodox view of the American Revolution and thank him for not advise, being around to advise King George III back in the day. Uh, we'll take a uh, 10 or 15 minute break. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.